In the heart of the state of the art, at the dawn of the next stage in entertainment, you found no proscenium. indeed found no proscenium the voice of everything immersive i'm your host noah nelson this week on the show we take a peek at venice vr expanded with curators liz rosenthal and michelle ryak ricky briganti is back this time in conversation with kathleen ford and margot motez of super blue and we check in with our friend jesse damiani to learn a few things about nfts still so hot right now But first, no, not the headlines. We'll get there. First, let me draw your attention to the center ring as we invite you to experience the next stage. ExperienceTheNextStage.com, that is. Today marks a big day for us here at NoPro as we're finally able to go public with what we've been working on for some time, which you can indeed find at ExperienceTheNextStage.com. Not only is that where you will find the first wave of speaker and workshop leader announcements for the summit that is coming up January 7th through 9th of 2022, now known as The Next Stage, that's going to happen at the historic Pasadena Playhouse in Pasadena, California, but you can also see that we're reorganizing what we do as a nonprofit. That nonprofit is the Immersive Experience Institute, and the first three members of the board are probably familiar to those of you who've been with us for a while. They are Immersive Director Michael Tara Garver, who many of you know from her talks at the Immersive Design Summits, producer Diana Williams, who amongst her many accolades was part of the team that launched ILMX Lab, and designer and Imagineer Sarah Thatcher, who first was known to us as one of the producers of the Jejun Institute, and is now part of the creative leadership on a little project called the Star Wars Galactic Star Cruiser. We're beyond honored to have them as the board of this thing we are building. So hop on over to experiencethenextstage.com or immersiveexperience.org if you prefer, and learn more, including who some of the guests at next year's The Next Stage will be. And there is a lot more to come. We'll get into some of that in the closing notes, so you'll want to stick around. And now, headlines. Hello, this is Catherine Yu, executive editor of No Proscenium, and here's what's in the immersive headlines for August 27th. A look at Disney's sentient robots. The virtual burn begins. TikTok's parent company possibly purchasing a VR headset manufacturer and saying farewell to an immersive venue in San Francisco. The New York Times looked into what Walt Disney Imagineering Research and Development has been working on. They got a look at a three-foot-tall interactive robot of Groot, who can wave, make eye contact, walk, dance, and more. It's just the latest evolution of Disney's animatronic technology, which also includes a stunt-tronic robot at Disney's California Adventure. This robot, outfitted in a Spider-Man suit, can perform elaborate aerial tricks just like a real-life stunt person. Disney says it's focusing its animatronics efforts on bringing extreme Marvel and Star Wars characters to life, the kind of which are more challenging to dupe traditionally. Over in the VR world, the virtual burn has begun. 
In lieu of a physical gathering this year, we're all invited to join a global digital incarnation of Burning Man. It's taking place now through September 7th. Six independent virtual event creators are building a constellation of various experiences known collectively as the Virtual Burn. And depending upon the particular experience, you can visit using your VR headset or your desktop computer or even a mobile device. Flip back one episode in your feed to hear more about this year's Virtual Burn on the last episode of the No Presidium podcast. And the VR rumor mill is currently buzzing with rumors of ByteDance, the company behind TikTok, being reportedly in talks to acquire Chinese VR headset manufacturer Pico. Pico recently released its Neo 3 headset, a 6 degrees of freedom headset with very similar specs to Facebook's Oculus Quest 2. The consumer version of the Neo 3 is currently only available in China, and apparently negotiations are still ongoing between ByteDance and Pico. More on this as it develops. And lastly... Let's pour one out for the Rathskeller Club in San Francisco. The team behind the Rathskeller Club venue have announced a decision to give up the lease on the space and close November 30th. And if you're not familiar with the venue's history, it was once the home of the Mysterious Latitude Society, a shadowy organization which Vice once called San Francisco's $2 million secret society startup. The Latitude Society was created by Nonchalance, the same organization behind the Jejun Institute, and after it suddenly folded in 2015, members of the immersive community took over the space and held on to it until now. And those have been your immersive headlines. Every year, the Venice Film Festival has some of the most incredible VR experiences you can find anywhere in the world. And last year, we were honored to be able to talk to the team behind Venice VR Expanded, which is reaching into your homes. This year, Venice VR Expanded is happening again. And joining us to talk about it today are... Liz Rosenthal. Hello. Um, I'm the co-curator of Venice VR Expanded. And I'm Michel Rayac. I'm also co-curator with Liz of Venice VR Expanded. It is so good to have you both. I think, Michelle, I think last year you were on a train when we were, when Liz and I talked, so we didn't yeah, get to have you yes, on. Yes, yes, yes. Um, just remembering that this morning, I was like, well, why didn't we have Michelle? Oh, right, train. Um, so just, just for starters, for those who might not know, what is Venice VR Expanded? Michelle, I'm going to let you go first. Yeah. Yes. Um, well, Venice VR Expanded is the only official competition in an international film festival um, around immersive content. By immersive content, we mean those story experiences that are immersive by um, uh, making the, the viewer immersed in a 360-degree sphere, if you will, it's as if you were thrown in the middle of the set of a movie instead of watching it through the window that the screen is. So it is really about being there, being part of the action, part of the story world. That's what we are representing the best we think of what is happening in the world today in terms of uh, immersive storytelling. And Venice VR Expanded is part of the Venice International Film Festival, which is the oldest film festival in the world. So we're part of the official programme. And um, we started 
our exhibition of immersive projects back in 2016 with a pilot program. And then in 2017, we expanded out to a fully blown section. And um, until the pandemic happened, we had this amazing venue that I talked about last year, um, the Lazaretto Vecchio, which is an old play quarantine island um, where we exhibited our work. And the reason we now call Venice VR Expanded Expanded is because because of COVID, we started um, a big virtual program, which we are um, expanding even further this year. Um, so um, that's what NSVR Expanded is. But again, this this year, we're very um, happy to say that we will be showing um, works um, in real life in Venice, um, not on the island, but in a exhibition space called our VR Gallery, um, and also in 14 different satellite venues around the world. So this is sort of Venice VR expanded, expanded, if you will. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, and also, I'm kind of disappointed it's not on 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 the plague quarantine island because that would have just been. Well, the the plague it was a plague quarantine island until about a, a hundred ten years ago. So since then, the plague has had time to to settle down the same way that the COVID will settle down eventually one day. Oh, but hopefully it won't take over a hundred years. So, oh my goodness. <laughs> no. Oh my goodness. All right. All right. This, this hybrid format, you know, was something that was kind of uh, imposed upon everyone last year. Uh, and now we've had a, a year to live with it and also see how it can get the work out to more people. So I'm wondering, has, has the format change changed the way you think about the programming or is has it changed the way or, or or has it changed anything about the way you see this work it has it has because the the pandemic has um accelerated greatly the the need for both individuals families um friends and uh, enterprises to find ways to be together that would be better than a Zoom. And uh, VR has benefited from this uh, need. And we've seen, like I can say, like at the beginning of uh, this year, I was looking for a platform to hold a workshop in Venice. And we were looking at what would be the best VR platform to do the work together. And I was shocked to see that there were over 200 social platforms that allow today work in fully immersive uh, format. So yes, that has changed the practice of VR. And in terms of our curatorial work with Liz, it has changed because we have been witnessing the explosion, the creative explosion of um, individuals who have used the time that they had in their hands to build worlds in platforms like VR chat. And this is something very new for us this year. It's a full new section of the festival where we're going to be showing 35 of those worlds that have been literally built with the most mind-blowing talent inside uh, the VR chat platform. And last year, we um, we held our festival on the VR chat platform when we had our Venice VR Expanded World. Um, we are building on that. So this year's world is going to be even more extraordinary. It's going to be a huge um, area um, where you can see previews of the works that are in competition. Um, 
that you'll be able to see on um, Oculus and Viveport, um, who are publishing platform partners. Um, but the actual experience of the social hub in VRChat is going to be pretty spectacular. And as Michelle mentioned, this new section of VRChat Worlds Gallery um, is going to be part of that world. So you can go and visit all those worlds. Anyone who has a VRChat account can visit the worlds. You know, one of the things that we found, I think, that really changed with, uh, with doing the virtual edition last year was the fact that it, it was such an amazing opportunity for people who can't normally come to Venice to experience um, the works that were in official competition um, and also to meet um, in, you know, to meet each other in the venue, um, which was online. It's it's worth mentioning for those people who are listening and who are not familiar with VR that when we say VR worlds and meeting in those VR worlds, we do this through avatars. We don't do it through, uh, you know, pictures of our faces. So it's a whole other behavioral pattern, socially, psychologically, and even emotionally how being together through avatars, which can be fantasy representations of ourselves or sometimes realistic ways of representing who we are in real life, and the interactions that we have through these avatars in those virtual worlds is like a parallel world, but a world in which um, the physical laws of the real world do not apply. So the fantasy, the dimensions, the dreamlike uh, feelings that you have in, in, in these worlds are, are incredibly powerful. In VR chat, the, you know, the avatar is almost, you know, one part currency mixed with a little social currency and, and, you know, expression of identity. It's such a, such a complex sort of subculture uh, around them. And that's been true for, for some number of years. Are there, um, this is a deep dive question for, real quick. Are there like special avatars being made for the, for the festival <laughs> yes. or no, like avatar galleries? That's a, that's a great question because we do have an avatar gallery oh, that's great. part of our world. So we've um, been in touch with some of the makers who've allowed us to link into their avatars. And um, so we got a brilliant selection of avatars. Um that um, you know, those VR chat makers have allowed us to use. So we're pretty excited about that. I think we have about thirty to forty avatars you can choose from, um, oh and that you can wear, that, that you can that you can have and um, use as your representation. It's also worth mentioning that a lot of the um, worlds that we are representing also have um, wearable avatars embedded in them that you can borrow, you know, from from the world. So there's a, an incredibly large collection of identities available yeah. uh, in VR chat through these worlds. And, and the other great new thing that we're doing is we've got quite an extensive events program um, within VR chat, because one of the things that's super hot in VR chat is the club nights. And so um, with our producer, Mike Salmon, who's really into clubbing and really into clubbing in VR chat, we've met some of the hottest sort of club um, worlds. And so we're really excited about those. We've got about five different special events um, taking place. You've really kitted out uh, the, the, that part of the, the program this year. That's really exciting. Um, to, to pivot over, uh, you know, Obviously, an expansion of what's being offered in VR chat is is a aside from just the scale of it, it's also sort of just ontologically huge. I'm wondering 
when it comes to the submissions you've seen over this this year, uh, if there's any trends or any sort of blossoming in in fields that were so far kind of quiet, because you you have been you know taking submissions for quite some time and and surveying the scene, where's where's the creative impulse of of VR headed right now? I would say that uh, one thing that is strengthening. Um, year after year is the blending of game dynamics and storytelling um, structures. It's uh, it's really fascinating to see how you have more and more um, genres in in those story worlds that are you can no longer qualify as games nor as stories, but truly a hybrid of both. I don't know, Liz, what you think, but I, but, but I, but to me, this is one of the deep, the deep trends that we are uh, that we're watching in what artists and individuals are playing with today. Absolutely. So it's really interesting because there are many different sort of groups working with VR, and um, often the um, game studios don't really their work doesn't really take part in film festivals, um, and a lot of the people we've been showing come from a different background. They're either sort of they may come from filmmaking background or a um, theatre making background or some kind of visual arts background. And we're in Venice, we're really sort of building a bridge between all those different communities. And um, so looking at our programme, we've got, for example, in competition, um, we've got a really exciting um, preview of a, um, a new VR game um, called The Last Worker. Um, which is going to be super beautiful. It's coming out, um, I don't think it's from March 2022, so we're excited because we're showing a 20-minute um, preview of that. And in our best of section, so that's a section, um, it's out of competition, but it's for projects that have launched since our last Venice VR. We've got several um, substantial um, narrative games. So we're choosing... Um, those VR projects are made by game studios that are narrative-driven um, projects. I would I would add also that one of the trends is definitely how social um, and how much a group experience, a collective experience, VR is becoming. We we keep seeing more and more live performances that happen inside VR platforms where both the audience members and the performers are scattered physically around the world and yet brought together in one same virtual space to experience one same um, story world. That is something that is beautiful to watch because a few up until a, a couple of years ago, one of the main criticism that was um, addressed towards uh, VR was, well, it's something that isolates you. It's a very solitary experience and it cuts you off, not only from the world, but from the physical world, but from anyone else. That's no longer true. It is a place where you meet people, um, where serendipity happens big time and where you can be with your your friends or, or family uh, to experience games, plays, dance, theater, circus, anything. So this that that dimension of uh, remote presence, um, which is an oxymoron uh, as an expression, is something also extremely strong that is uh, happening. Absolutely. And so we've got three um, social multiplayer performance projects. Um, 
two are on um, VRChat um, and one is on its own platform, which is kind of really interesting because it's a technical first. It's a project called Bedlam and it's by a visual artist from the UK called Matt Collishaw. Um, and it, they're working with um, a French company who've built a new platform um, that's really interesting because it's cloud rendering based and it's the, I think it's a kind of first time something like this has been done. So it's the um, story of the Bedlam Asylum in the UK, um, which was a famous uh, um, institution for um, madness and where, where it was really awful. People used to come and um, sort of view like visiting a kind of visitor attraction or museum um, people who have been committed to the asylum. You mentioned that they're rendering that in the cloud. That's that is really interesting because it means that they're not using the local computer to to do that. Is that is that something that's being ported out on PC or also on Oculus? Um, it's going to be PC. PC, um, okay. But and also on desktop. But um, it's like the first version, so it's going to be right. ported out across everything eventually. All that we're we're talking about right here really points in the direction of the metaverse as uh, something that is definitely uh, being built as we speak. The metaverse being this parallel um, world, you know, or, or numbers of worlds, connected worlds, where we will be able to operate, socialize, and and create um uh virtually that is something that is no longer part of a hypothetical future it is actually in construction right now yeah i i had i had that experience last year of sort of flipping back and forth between the venice vr expanded programming and burning man which was happening over in yeah. alt space at the same time and just it was it was so so much of the dynamics that people are like speculating out in these panels of business people were just happening for real between those events that were occurring simultaneously uh and yeah. and i i went in you know last when i finally got my hands on a rig i i went on a deep dive into vr chat like late last fall and just saw how just how kind of incredible a lot of the worlds that are being built are. Um, and, and I've seen some pieces that didn't just have the, the local avatar as a matter of convenience, but as, as an artistic statement, as a, as something that was dynamic and sort of, you know, helped cast you into the world in a specific There's... role. Absolutely. There's an event that we are presenting called Mycelia, which will be a concert, but uh, Liz can describe it um, more in details. But it's it's a piece in which you as the viewer will need to dress for the part. You will need to um, put You're on basically dressed avatar. as a fungi. Exactly. <laughs> and you need to you need to fit into the whole set. So the, the you need to um, put on an avatar that is designed to be a part of the show. And they're totally spectacular, the avatars. And it's actually um, a musician called Nanotopia who plays Mycelia. And she's playing live with biosensors in her studio, live into the VR chat world. And her avatar is totally astounding. Um, oh, and wow. so are the audience avatars in the world. is absolutely beautiful. Something you're making me realize is that going to a themed party in VR chat is a lot easier than going to a themed party in real life. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> 
<laughs> and I'm the kind of person. Oh, go for it. Yeah. No, no, no. Go ahead. Yeah, like I'm the kind of person who does enjoy going to a theme party if I have the right kit, but I rarely have the right kit, so I find them very stressful. <laughs> I just don't go, and now I'm like, oh, but here easier. So yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And the beauty is you can just change you can change your identity and costume every second, <laughs> which mm -hmm. is even funner. So um, for those who are interested how uh you, you mentioned that the vr chat world list that's something that anyone who has access to vr chat can go and, and spin through uh for the rest of the programming uh how do how do people uh take part in venice vr expanded so if you want to see our official selection of 37 projects um you need to get an accreditation so you need to go to the biennale website um so yours if you if you if you google um Venice um, VR, you will um, find a page that will take you to the accreditation. Um, and um, that also for the live events, you will need to have an accreditation because you'll be given access codes to join our hosts in our world because there'll be private instances for the events. Whereas everything else in the world, you can visit the world and you can see previews of all of the projects, the 37 projects, um, in an exhibition hall within our world. Um, but you do need to buy a pass, um, which I believe is 100 euros. Um, and you'll get to see the whole selection of 37 projects, plus um, get to go to all those um, events um, in our VR chat world um, and meet the creators and meet all the other sort of creators and festival guests. This is exactly like any festival or concert, you know, where you where you you pay a sort of entrance fee, and that fee gives you access to everything we're offering. So, the, and this will be done through keys. Once you are accredited, you will receive uh, super keys, which are code um, numbers, and you you just uh, type it into the the platform, and you have access to all of the content. Well, fantastic. Uh, it really is an incredible lineup. So for those who uh, are interested, even the slightest bit, I encourage them to go and check it out this year. So uh, Liz and Michelle, thank you so much for talking with us today. And uh, hopefully we'll uh, be doing this again in a year. <laughs> yes. Thank you so thank, much. Thanks so much, Nora. <laughs> Now we're back for my favorite segment and yours. It's Immersive 101 with NoPro's executive editor, Catherine Yu. Hello, Catherine. Hi, Noah. <laughs> uh, so everyone knows like we record these in a block, so we've just been saying <laughs> hi to each other for the past like 40 minutes. Hello, it's, hi, it's, hello, bonjour. Hello, hello, hello. hello. Hey, um, <laughs> uh, we're in the punchy phase of the recording. Catherine, what do we have this week? So, Noah, I thought today that we would talk about immersive activations. Immersive activations. All right. What uh, is, is this like where your superpower turns on or, or I get a new Mjolnir? What? What's, what's an activation? Hmm. Well, yes or no. Um, so typically an immersive activation is a free marketing event which takes some other brand or story from a different medium and turns that into an immersive experience. So oftentimes you will see these temporary pop-up events 
uh, to promote a video game or a movie or something similar that's coming out. Oftentimes they are attached to a bigger event. So if you look back at the South by Southwest World mm. event that was attached to South by Southwest, and sometimes you'll see them also popping up in conjunction with New York Comic Con, San Diego Comic Con, or sometimes Independent. And you'll be like, oh, okay, uh, I'm going to go to this and maybe there might be free food and drinks. I might interact with some actors. There's going to be some interesting props or set dressing from the television show or film that they're promoting. Uh, there are very, very often lots of photo opportunities, perhaps uh, some small tasks or scavenger hunts or puzzles to solve. And these are very popular because they are free and oftentimes connected to some intellectual property that people really love. Are they always free, though? I think I've seen a few where they like they charge money. So if you look at the Stranger Things drive into, which was in Los Angeles, as well as some of the other related activations, those are ticketed events but those also often have a longer lifespan. So if it's something that's attached to a Comic-Con, it might only be for a day or two. If it's a lot longer and it has a lot more actors, you might find that those kinds of events uh, are selling tickets. Okay, so I think I, I get it. So if it's if it's going for a long time uh, and it's like for like a Netflix show, it might cost you some money. But if it's popping up, at comic-con or a comic-con for a weekend it's it's just going to be a marketing thing they just like give it to you for free and you just gotta spend your time but why what the activation what is it activating why do they call it an activation so for someone who is a big fan of say a particular superhero or a particular story world they are going to get really excited about a new season of a television show dropping or a film premiere and they're going to talk about what a great experience they had attending this pop-up take uh take photos for instagram tell all their friends add a bunch of hashtags if they're posting on twitter so it really starts to create a lot of buzz around a particular piece of media, which will later on be available via television or film or something like that. So it so, starts to create a lot of buzz. So it's it's activating the fans. It's activating the brand. That's what's getting activated. Yes. And there are always... There's always an element also of FOMO here because I didn't get to go to South by Southwest World and I was really jealous of everyone who did get to go. So it's also so it's, it's activating not just the people that are there, but it's activating like everyone across the spectrum. For sure. All right. Well, go out there, get your activation on, whether you're making them or you're attending them and uh, tag us in all your photos, I guess. <laughs> Oh, I probably shouldn't have said that. But you know what? Do it anyway. All right, Catherine, uh, we'll see you back here for the next 101. All right. My pleasure. Still to come, the pick of the week, our talk with Jesse Damiani about NFTs, more on the next stage, and Ricky Briganti talks with the curators at Superblue. Right now, we want to take a moment to thank our latest Patreon backer, Darcy Troy Pollock, 
and to our long-term, and I mean this, he was one of our first, backers, Jay Bushman, who has, as of this episode, become one of our sustaining backers. You can join them both at patreon.com slash and gain access to the backer-exclusive bonus feed and growing video collection. The Patreon is the primary way we fund this show and the website, although... As we reorganize as a nonprofit, I'm happy to announce that the Immersive Experience Institute is powered by Producer Hub, our new fiscal sponsor, which will allow our organization to accept tax-deductible donations. More on that in the weeks to come. Right now, Experiential Art Space Superblue opened their flagship Miami location just a few months ago and has recently announced they are bringing their brand of immersive art to London and New York this fall. If you haven't had the pleasure of going, you might recall Super Blue from our friend and Pseudonym Productions co-founder, Ricky Briganti's feature in episode 304 about the rise of immersive art venues. Now Ricky is back to learn more about Super Blue's approach to enveloping audiences in art and their strategies for shaping immersive design as he speaks to two of Super Blue's curators, Kathleen Ford and Margot Motez. I'm Kathleen Ford. I'm the senior curator at Superblue, based in New York, and work with Margot and the rest of the curatorial team um, on anything exhibition related with our artists. So you really find us working from sketch on a napkin phase with our artists through completion and realization of all of our projects and installations. And I'm Margot Motez. Um, I'm the associate curator, and I'm based in the London office. Um, and as Kathleen said, we work really as a very close team um, and collaborate with all the artists um, that work with Superblue on special projects, exhibitions, commissions. Um, so we really work across departments and um, making those visions a reality. Can you give me kind of the brief history of, of what is Superblue, how it came to be? So I joined um, what is now Superblue about two and a half years ago now, um, in a moment where we were sort of figuring out what we wanted to be. Um, Superblue, I, I think we should say that it's a company that started with artists um, and Pace Gallery. So um, Superblue is ostensibly an offshoot of the Pace Gallery. And Molly Den Brocklehurst and Mark Limsher are co-founders. Um, they were starting to realize probably six, seven years ago that there was really a kind of change in the landscape and that a lot of artists that were working today um, we're working in different kind of media than traditional artists who showed in galleries or in museums. And that included artists whose studios were also bigger. They had kind of cross-disciplinary practices. They involved visual artists, designers, architects, engineers, scientists. So there's really this sort of expansion in medium. And those artists tended to work in a much larger scale and create works that didn't quite fit in the traditional infrastructure of the art world. That is sort of, you know, commercial gallery setups or um, public institutions. And they started thinking, is there a way to create a kind of art world ecosystem or an addition to that where these artists can create their work and produce more work? And they were also, of course, thinking about historically, I mean, experiential art isn't a fully new movement. Um, we can go back to sort of James Terrell and Robert Irwin, who are artists who are working in space with light um, and Pace worked very closely with them already at the time. So it's really a continuation um, of that kind of idea and innovation. That sort of kept evolving. And as we were having discussions and we started learning about more artists in this world, we realized that we really needed to create our own kind of model. Um, and that was really important to what we're doing today is trying to figure out 
how we can best support these artists and show their works to the broadest possible audiences. And to add to that piece of the business model, not only are they sharing in the ticket sales from the first venue, they're also compensated for the production of the work and they have an artist fee for, for making that piece. What do you feel this process of, of working with the artist and, and developing these experiential art centers, what do you think it's, it's doing to contribute to sort of the general public's overall understanding and appreciation of art? Well, I think that what we've seen in Miami uh, and what we've seen with you know, other successful ventures in this, in this realm is that you're able to speak to a broader audience. So, and, and yet, particularly with Superblue, because we are born in the art world and are led by artists, you see that the work that we do is as meaningful as it is magnificent. You know, what you see is that a lot of our artists are dealing with issues that are as diverse as the environment, immigration, how technology has shape-shifted our lives, how we interact with one another, what it means to be human, our sense of perception, how we sense the world around us. But they're doing it from this way that is very seductive and uh, really transcendental and very welcoming to an audience. So I think that you see a, a broader audience able to engage with these issues through an artist's eyes. I often say that artists that work in this fashion at scale and in immersion and in large scale experience, they, uh, I feel like audiences almost can have the um, opportunity to experience visual art the same way that we experience music. Like how often do you hear people saying after, uh, when, about music, I don't get it, it's over my head. I need somebody to explain it to me. And I feel like what we're allowing audiences is a certain like, comfort level with visual art and a way to kind of filter through and experience the world around us from a place that is safe, poetic, and, and really gorgeous. Groups like Meow Wolf have emerged with their own take on what it means to sort of have art versus entertainment. And then, and then Kathleen just brought up music, which some people think of as art, some people think of as entertainment. You know, what are your, what are your thoughts on, on that conversation of, of do we come to Super Blue for entertainment value and spectacle, or do we take something of, of meaning and value away from the art? That's a great question. I think in the landscape we see today, there's room for every player and there's an audience for everyone. And that's really exciting to see. Um, I think people who are working in this creative space and in these immersive, immersive experiences, there's value in any of them for people to, as a kind of, you know, an, an entry point into the art world and into the world of creativity. With Superblue, I think what really distinguishes us is the fact that, first of all, I mean, we're, we're working with living artists, like living contemporary artists. Um, and that is different, for example, to the Van Gogh experience that you mentioned um, earlier. Or, but on top of that, I think we're really looking at works that are really cross-disciplinary, performative. And I think that ties into what Kathleen was talking about in terms of you know, music, performance, dance, theater. We try to bring in really all those components. And through those kind of that really that multidisciplinary approach, it allows us to have layers in the artwork. And I think some people will come in and walk out and they've just thought this was really beautiful and that's enough and that's all they want to take home. And then other people will have the opportunity to kind of dig deeper into those, into the themes and into the message that the artist is trying to convey and into those intentions. And I hope, and it is our kind of goal to offer that 
kind of the multi-layered process and approach where people can kind of take what they want from it, but there's always more depth and more meaning to it and a chance to open a conversation about an important um, issue today. We'd also point to some of the works in, um, in Miami. I'd love to hear mm -hmm. uh, how you tease out the meaningfulness of what the artworks represented in Miami. We're showing um, three, three sort of installations um, as part of the exhibition, Every Wall is a Door. And that includes um, a large kind of digital space by Team Lab, which is a Japanese um, collective, a, an iconic um, but new work, um, Gunsfeld work by James Terrell, and a, a completely new commission called The Forest of Us by S. Devlin. And the idea between sort of behind using all those works was that they showed kind of the arc of experiential art and how it's progressed and different approaches in terms of medium and idea and concept. Um, and with Team Lab, we're really looking at artists who are trying to reconnect humanity with nature. Um, and you sort of really, you're able to really interact with the works and touch the walls and flowers bloom. And you can sort of walk through and there's music playing and the whole environment changes in real time with you and with the audience members. And it's really about a message of people coming together and everyone sort of impacting the artwork in real time. And so someone that you don't know, a complete stranger, you know, their experience of the world will change depending on yours. Then you go to James Trell and that's really a moment of contemplation, of pause. James Trell is someone who is, you know, sort of the master of, of showing you light as a thing in itself. Um, and you're really going into that space and it changes the way you see everything. You sort of lose your entire sense of orientation, of perception, the walls start to dissolve. Um, so you're really in this moment where that's more of a self kind of introspective reflection, I guess, um, in that process. Um, and then you would walk into as Devlin's work, um, which is probably the most um, environmentally engaged of the three. And she's really looking at how um, our lungs and our body are so closely linked to trees and nature and how our sort of breathing process is intrinsically linked with the breathing process of trees. Um, so there's really, as you can see, a, a kind of palette and a range of, of ideas and um, and mediums and approaches to, to what an immersive experience can be. And even as we're starting to design some of our other experiential art centers and the installations that will go into them, there's a lot of deep conversation with our artists on thinking about the visitor's journey through the space and how, particularly in solo shows, you know, what is the reason for this to unfold in time? And how do you um, move them through a space? How do you time that experience in a very organic way that's not didactic? So we're thinking about lots of um, strategies that actually come more from the world of performance uh, and are a bit more theatrical. Um, in one of the installations we're thinking about right now, it's very much tied to a musician scoring the installation. And you walk through a score and each room unfolds a, a very a different track in the music. Where we've, we've had discussions about working with lighting designers where you come into the room and the light goes from dim to an arc and back down again and then a light you see a light around the corner and you want to walk towards it uh, we've had conversations about collaborations with dancers and choreographers who are helping you move through space with actual bodies and physical movement so that conversation that language or the strategies that our artists use are very much in keeping with thinking about how our audience members are going to be guided throughout the space and what their experience is going to be. There's absolutely a reason for this to unfold in time. And there is a journey. And I think that our spaces are really meant to feel more like a, a journey than a meandering to a certain extent.
Um, and there is a reason and a rationale between what you see first and second and third and how you leave. Um, so there is a certain dramaturgy to it all. There's a theatricality to it. And uh, it's definitely guided. That piece was brought to us by Ricky Briganti of Pseudonym Productions, who, along with his partner Sarah Elger, is one of the co-authors of the Immersive Industry Report, which we publish. Check out what they're up to next at questionreality.com. Hi there, this is Patrick McLean, the Chicago Curator with No Proscenium. I'm here to talk about this week's pick of the week, and with us is... Hi there, this is Blake Weil, the East Coast Curator at Large. And Blake, what is the pick of the week you have for us? This week, I am bringing you the immersive gala version of A Midsummer Night's Dream, brought to you by Altera Productions, formerly known as Cirque de Nuit. Cool. And this was in Philadelphia, right? Yes, this was in Philadelphia at the gorgeous Glen Ford Estate on the Delaware. Mm, that does sound very majestically beautiful. So what makes this the pick of the week? So that, that majestic beauty definitely was a strong suit, but a lot of it boiled down to the ways they managed to create an intimate and immersive experience with both respect to their aims in producing this experience as a fundraiser gala, and B, with respect to COVID safety, the whole evening took on sort of the tone of just a gorgeous, fun summer wedding. And everyone was having a great time. The drinks were free-flowing. People were enjoying the munchies. And then as the evening went on and you got pulled into little intimate or one-on-one -on -one interactions with some of the fantastic circus performers there with Almanac Circus Dance Theater, or you get uh, front row seats or even just a private little viewing of a lover's quarrel between two of the Athenian lovers, it really managed to draw you into sort of the story of the world. And you know, that's why I go to immersive theater. But with respect to all of that, most of the evening was outdoors, especially anything with eating or drinking where you'd have to remove a mask. The There was plenty of social distancing and they managed to use a lot of really smart audience tracking for everything other than some of the big centerpiece scenes to make sure that people were pretty spread out across the evening. And also... They managed to have a lot of fun playing with the evening as a gala, both to announce their name change to Altera Productions and to fundraise for their upcoming season. Um, this all kind of came to a head when the audience, uh, sort of in the persona of Athenian nobles, was treated as the producer of Pyramus and Thisbe and asked as producers funding the productions to give whatever notes they want to have the play be improvised in verse with whatever great suggestions from the audience they got. And so all in all, it managed to balance fun, strong performance, and some really, really good production design. And I don't just mean that in terms of art direction, but really in terms of how the evening was structured. Wow. Well, that just really sounds like a really great time. And it's so cool when 
you know, all of those elements of circus, Shakespearean text, uh, site-specific benefits of location just coalesce and come together for it, a really nifty experience. It all really gelled. And I'm really excited to hear that Altera now has an ongoing relationship with the estate and is going to be putting on some more shows there. So sorry to all of you who missed this one, but keep your eyes out for their next show, The Poison Garden, coming this October. Uh, I know I'm not going to miss it. Cool. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Blake, for coming on and talking about this pick with us. Hey, thanks for having me. Uh, You have a great night as always, Patrick, and I will catch you at the next review crew. Yes, and for all of those listening, you can catch us uh, every Wednesday at typically 5 p.m., Pacific, uh, 8 p.m. Eastern, to join us live for any conversations we're having as part of Review Crew. You can also catch the latest episode of the Review Crew here in the pod feed, just one stop back in your feed. Now we've reached that part of the show where we check in with our friends from around the Immersiverse. Joining us today is Jesse Damiani, who, amongst other things, is a contributing writer at Forbes covering uh, the tech and art scene. And he just curated the NFT show Sea Change at Vellum LA as part of the LA Art Show. You might have uh, heard about that. Jesse, how's it going? It's going very well. Happy to be here. How are you doing? Uh, you know, uh, you know, it's uh, it's August uh, 2021, so uh, <laughs> it's got all sorts of dynamics. Um, but you know about, about that. So, uh, Jesse, I wanted to have you on the show uh, since we, we started this reboot because you've been covering tech and art for a long time. We've had a lot of conversations about AR, about VR, and you've also been covering uh, NFTs, non fungible tokens for those who who don't know the technical term uh which i guess i'll uh, have you explain what it is in a second because probably some people listening don't know Uh, but you've been covering that before it blew up in january but it like really blew up in january just one of those like cultural moments where like suddenly everybody wanted to to talk about it because of some big sales don't need to go into that but for those who don't know What's what is NFT and sort of where are we right now with this and art? The easiest way to think about fungibility, which is the weirdest word in the NFT term, is to think it's about like it. a kombucha brand, right? <laughs> yeah, that actually would be a great kombucha brand. Um, although to carry the example, fungibility and a liquid would be very tough. But you know, we can get into that later. But basically, thinking of fungibility as like the way you would think of the loaf of bread versus the slices of bread. So something being non-fungible essentially just means it can't be subdivided. With that, you have a token that is non-fungible. So you can't subdivide it. So you take a dollar, you can subdivide it into 100 cents and et cetera, et cetera. With a non-fungible token, you can't subdivide it. And that's important because it establishes a discrete unit or a discrete signature to, um, in many cases, a a piece of digital art or digital good. It can also relate to um, pieces in the physical world, but that's kind of like a separate conversation to the one that has been happening um, for the past few years. And as you mentioned, particularly early in 2021. And yeah, as to what's happening um, in the art world is really what that big sales disruption did is it caused the public to take digital art seriously on its own terms for the first time. And not, of course, without a bunch of sort of silliness and chicanery and um, 
you know, strange, strange, uh, strange headlines. But all of a sudden, people were looking at digital art as an asset worthy of investment. And so in the same way that you might look at a Jackson Pollock and think to yourself, well, I could, I could, you know, sling a paint can and, you know, make my version of a Pollock. People still might approach digital art in the same way of saying that's silly or weird, or I could do that. It has now reached a market status that has communicated that it is a, a high value thing. And so that was really what we were contending with in the spring and what has kind of extended uh, into the summer and, and now the fall. What does, you know, the, the art market taking digital art seriously mean for those who are kind of working in these fields where they may be passed between, like I'm thinking of someone like Sutu, right? Mm. Who we've had on the show because of the work he does in AR. And I know Sutu's minting NFTs, and Sutu, you know, will will do a project like Brianna's Garden, but will also is doing all these hand-drawn neons uh, yeah. and minting them out as NFTs. And, you know, I, I assume that means selling, selling, you know, digital prints, if you will, is how I'm thinking of it. How does this pivot into this being now considered valuable? What does it mean to artists like that? Well, you know, take, take Sutu, take an, a handful of other um, artists that, you know, have been knocking about the immersive space for a number of years, they now have an avenue where, like taking Sutu's example, where you can sell these, as you're calling them, digital prints, which basically, for, for context, you can sell a one-of-one one, or you can sell an open edition. Um, in many cases, Sutu's minting on Hick at Nunk, so the idea is that lots of people can collect these pieces, which, you know, I think is why you're sort of equating it to like a digital print. Um, but it essentially creates a framework where artists can potentially build their practice in such a way that they don't necessarily need to be taking on other work. They can actually build their practice as their you know, revenue generating career, which traditionally hasn't been the case for digital artists. The sort of quintessential successful digital artist of, let's say, two years ago was somebody who made their art over here on the left and then did commissioned work or design work for, you know, paying clients over on the right. So the, the big change is now NFTs are letting digital artists really participate meaningfully in the creator economy. And that takes all types of forms. Some artists are migrating a one of one approach where it's basically saying this is a precious piece of digital art and there could only be one of it. And so like any art sold on super rare is a one of one, for instance, um, or it's somebody saying, you know what, I don't want this to be this heavily priced out blue chip type of art. I want it to be more accessible and I want people to feel like, you know, they can collect into my, you know, community. Um, and so they take a, as you say, more of a digital print approach and everything in between. So it's potentially a, a huge moment, um, for artists to step into their career as just standing on its own terms without sort of other work. I'm not saying that that's proven true for everyone. And, and I think like anything, it takes a ton of hard work and ingenuity and um, a lot of sort of factors left up to luck and to zeitgeist, yeah. but it's an avenue now. So that's, what's really exciting. I think for, for artists like Sutu. Yeah. There was kind of like a land rush there for a moment is what it felt like a land rush, a gold rush. People felt like anyone celebrities got into, into <laughs> the game in, in a way it looked like a way to make a quick buck. And then it, 
a lot of that quickly dissipated, but there, there's, there's a couple of things here. So one question I'm going to ask is about, you know, there was a lot of controversy around like the environmental impact of this stuff because sure. of the environmental impact of the blockchain technology it's based off. And then there's also just the question of, you know, with, you know, Sutu's a, a, a good example, but he's also like, you know, a very established digital artist. So there is a question about like, what, what could this mean potentially for people in the immersive space who aren't necessarily in the immersive and experiential space who aren't necessarily, you know, just visual artists. So got that question for you, but let's start with the environmental one. Um, so when things first popped, there was a really big pushback and a big pushback by, uh, even amongst the artistic community because there was a fair amount of this being done on one of the blockchains uh, known as Ethereum, which at the moment was, and I think still at this moment, was slash is using a type of uh, process that's really energy inefficient, we'll say, right? Like uh, the, the whole idea of crypto done in this particular fashion you know, means for, for the value is is sort of replicated by making computers solve really complicated formulas, and that creates some of the rarity. And then next thing you know, people are you know hooking up giant stacks of GPUs to hydroelectric dams, uh, <laughs> hoping that uh, that they're going to make enough money <laughs> by minting imaginary money, uh, <laughs> but it's not going to cost them that much energy. And so, just really driving things in a really kind of absurd way from where I'm sitting, but is, has the, the NFT market kind of settled into a place where some of that's still happening, but then there are other movements. It's so opaque to me. Yeah, there's a lot going on and, you know, we could fill the whole podcast with the sort of like, um, ecological toll of what are called proof of work, um, mining blockchains. Um, so basically, proof of work is a is an algorithm used to establish consensus on the blockchain. Um, these are like, and I understand like you're kind of throwing out words. People are like, wait, what? Basically, instead of like, let's take a basic sort of transaction formula. Instead of going to your bank and withdrawing money and paying somebody with that money, any transaction conducted on the blockchain, it's going into a decentralized blockchain. There's no Wells Fargo or Bank of America executing that transaction. So what you have is nodes on the network all essentially agreeing on it. Like think about like a, a Google sheet where the, the data input into a given cell, everybody looking on that Google sheet says, okay, yep, that happened. Uh, that's correct. Like we're processing that. Yeah. And basically that process of all those computers, as you say, conducting um, increasingly complex math, math is, you know, to make this short, you know, very bad for the environment. There's a contextual sort of issue with that framing because it's not wrong in and of itself, but it undercuts the ways in which existing cloud and server infrastructure are also horrific for the environment. And so the broader question is like, okay, how do we precipitate systems that are more eco-friendly? And there already are blockchains that are. And so Tezos, which is the blockchain that artists like Sue to use when they're minting work on Hicket Nunk. Um, you might hear people refer to it as Hen. Um, that blockchain um, is sort of touted as uh, a, a green blockchain. There, there are a number of others. So it is very possible to mint NFTs in an eco-positive, eco-friendly way. Um, Ethereum is just the, you know, 
oldest and most established and has the largest sort of developer community um, of any smart chain. So any, any blockchain that's programmable. Um, there's, so that is still a problem. There's this movement toward um, ETH layer two, which is when Ethereum will transition from proof of work to proof of stake, which is purported to be far um, less traumatic to the environment. This is a conversation that I'm glad that artists brought to the fore because it's something that's been true of Ethereum for six years and okay. people have been talking about it, but it was artists who drove the conversation sort of the, to the top of the pile. And you have a lot of artists like Sutu, like Memo Acten, like Nancy Baker Cahill, who have taken this particular stand saying, this is a new system and we're trying to put forward new, better systems than the ones we're replacing. So let's really try to drive this conversation um, toward more eco-positive um, solutions. So anyway, the long story short is there are many ways to mint NFTs that are eco-friendly. Um, there are still some ways that um, are much worse than the more positive ways, but that might bring with them more visibility, might be attached to marketplaces that um, are more have a bigger media engine. Right. For me, it's kind of like, you know, we're, we're all in our way, in our particular ways, complicit. But the bigger issue is this isn't a matter of personal responsibility. This is a bigger question of regulation and of capitalism. And I think trying to attack that rather than the individual artists who are maybe finally able to have a sustainable or a career that sustains them economically, to me, it's a little bit crabs in a bucket because it's, it's sort of attacking the closest at hand rather than the root of the problem. But I am glad that the conversation continues to be an important one. Jesse, do you have like a couple more minutes to wax philosophic with me? Sure, of course. Okay, so here's what I'm going to do. We'll put that in a cut. We'll, we'll drop that into the bonus feed uh, for those who want to follow up on this because I know we've been at it for, for a while now. And I had like seven ideas while you were talking just then. And I'm like, <laughs> I'm not going to subject the, the main podcast with this, but I do want to follow up. So Jesse, uh, if you want to follow along and, and keep track of what you're doing, where's the best place to find you these days? I am uh, on Twitter and Instagram and all the, all the social media channels at my name, at Jesse Damiani. All right, Jesse, thanks for uh, jumping on the show this week. Thanks for having me. You can indeed find the rest of that conversation between myself and Jesse in the backer exclusive part of the feed. You can get that by going to patreon.com slash no proscenium and uh, claiming your special RSS. Uh, just as a little bit of a tease, uh, I actually lifted part of the conversation out because the original version of the pre-cut was like 20 minutes long. So there's even more, including a chunk where we talk about uh, sleep no more masks and digital versions of them. So we start to kind of blend all of the digital and the physical together. So check it out. Uh, it's, it's almost like uh, being in a dinner party with Jesse and myself, uh, which occasionally happens. All right. So I promised you a little bit more about what we're doing with the next stage. So as we hit the informal part of the, the, <laughs> of the show, uh, let me just tell you, if you go to experiencethenextstage.com or immersiveexperience.org, here's what you're going to find. One, you're going to find a section 
called the next stage, you're also going to see who the leadership of the Institute is. Now, obviously, I already talked about the board. So I talked about Michael and Sarah and Diana. And seriously, I'm ecstatic about having all of them. Uh, Sarah, like Jay Bushman, uh, who's just joined the Sustaining Backers, uh, Sarah was integral to the very existence of No Persinium. Um, she was part of a dinner party that I threw, you know, eight years ago, I think now, uh, that was like a regularly recurring thing where we all got together to talk about it. Jay was also part of that. So it just means so much to have this continuity and also to watch people's careers blossom. Uh, that indeed is a big part of what we're doing. Let me, let me just do the thing where I read from the website, like our mission statement. All right. So we're, we're, we're organizing as the Immersive Experience Institute. So here's how we frame this. Our mission statement is thus. The Immersive Experience Institute exists to create a sustainable future for immersive and experiential arts and artists worldwide. With a focus on creators, we provide resources, platforms, and education to inspire and empower artists while reflecting our community's values and practices. Leveraging industry gatherings, live programming, and our media portfolio, we light the way towards a healthy, inclusive, and innovative field that is home to a broad, diverse audience. Yes, that is a nonprofit mission statement there for certain. What that means is everything we do over here uh, is now organized underneath this umbrella. So the next stage, Summit, and the micro festival that we're aiming to have, that's organized under it. No proscenium, organized under it. Everything immersive, organized under it. That's the portfolio here in the org, which we're aiming towards being a 501c3. And we have our fiscal sponsorship, thanks to Producer Hub. All right. Now, I know what you really care about. It's like, okay, but who's talking? What's going on at the summit? Okay. So the summit, which was the Here Summit and Festival, is now the next stage. January 7th through 9th. 2022 Pasadena Playhouse. The initial lineup of guests, and we've got more coming. So I'm, I'm not going to read a huge list of names here. So just know that there's there are definitely more. Um, Sarah Ellis from the Royal Shakespeare Company, who was tagged for 2020. She's back. Vance Garrett, also who was tagged for 2020. Uh, Vance, uh, who is, is now the chief creative officer of Constellation Immersive, who just did Disco Oasis. They did the Elf on the Shelf holiday journey, uh, in this, uh, last year. Uh, Vance has also been uh, on Sleep No More and 29 Rooms and Museum of Ice Cream and Model Land and was at Westfield. Like Vance, Vance has been in the Vanguard since Jump. We've got Rachel Joy Victor on world building and Rachel's, uh, done work for Disney and Fox and HBO. Monica Mikolas, of course, who you know from Capital W and Fire Season and Brassroots District. She's on tap. Sean Taylor, who is part of our 2020 set, uh, who also uh, spoke at the 2019 IDS, uh, who's uh, a senior fellow with the Pop Culture Collaborative. Sean's coming through. Sean was also uh, you know, part of the Here Weekend when we did like the online part. Sean was there. Uh, and it was an absolutely great episode. I love talking to Sean uh, every time I get a chance. The Wild Optimists, uh, that is uh, Juliana and Ariel, 
Of course, uh, you, we know them from Escape Room in a Box, The World of Experiment, which was one of, years ago on the podcast. And since then, they've worked with Amazon and Sony and Universal and Little Cinema and Electric Forest Music Festival, just tons of projects. We've got Mr. and Mischief. That's Jeff and Andy Crocker, uh, at, who made the incredible Escape from Gatto, which we're aiming to have Gatto, when, you know, making the assumption that we get to do festival stuff. Uh, that is targeted one way or another. We've got Jeff and Andy coming through, uh, super excited there on the workshop side of things, uh, Xing Yin core, uh, their, uh, work has been at burning man. They were also the designer of Hamlet mobile, which, you know, is my favorite. And, uh, they've been doing a lot with these keepsake games of, of late and, has a whole methodology around making uh, making objects that have deep meaning, and they're going to bring that to our, our 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 guests and all the attendees. Uh, Dasha Kittredge and Ari Tar, uh, who have been doing workshops, uh, a lot of stuff around mask work and avatars in VR, uh, they're going to come through with a workshop. And Tara Okan, uh, who has led workshops. Uh, a couple of workshops back in the IDS days uh, is also coming through. Uh, Tara, of course, you might know from uh, Third Rail Projects, Then She Fell, and The Grand Paradise, amongst other things, and will be in their upcoming online-only piece. Uh, so not, not bad for a starter deck, uh, I would say. Uh, I'm really happy. A lot of familiar faces from 2020. There's some more folks from 2020, uh, the, the, the postponed here event that we're talking to and are looking to bring on. Uh, there's also some more people from that we haven't, <laughs> we haven't reached out to yet because things are always chaotic. Uh, but know that uh, we're, we're doing everything we can to make this uh, absolutely the best event uh, we've ever produced. Full stop. We also know that uh, things are really just weird right now. Uh, Delta's got uh, everybody doing the the, sh- the two-step shuffle. Should people be gathering? Should they not be gathering? The surge right now is really bad around the country. What is January going to look like? Because of that, I encourage you to take a look at how we're organizing badges and passes. What we're going to do is we're going to put the streaming passes up on sale early next month. And one of those passes, a streaming plus, yeah, I know Catherine hates it. I call it that a streaming plus pass is going to reserve seats and will give you a chance to hold on, uh, to see how things go, uh, up until the beginning of November. And that's when we're going to unleash all the tickets. Uh, and we're going to be looking at the way things go as well. The next few weeks are really critical and will determine a lot about whether it makes sense to do an in-person event. It's also going to come down to your interest. So uh, if a lot of people just like don't <laughs> look like they want to come and do things in person, that's going to, you know, mean that we'll wind up pivoting to online. I don't really want to pivot to online only. Uh, we will have a hybrid event one way or another. Uh, we've got a fantastic partner when it comes to streaming that I'm very excited to be working with, and we'll be announcing who that is uh, as soon as they get me their logo. Um, so that's going to be really great. Um, but I, I really want to close the loop 
Uh, as a lot of you know, we were just like two weeks out from doing the 2020 summit when we had to stop and um, that broke my heart and is still breaking my heart to this day. So this is our chance to get back on the right track. And I really look forward to you joining us at the next stage in January. If you are a badge holder for 2020, you do have special privileges. You will get a deep discount on the prices and we're doing everything we can to keep things in line with, um, with what the refund structure was. Um, because that's who I am and I can't really think of doing it any other way. It would just drive me nuts if I, if I couldn't. Uh, also, if you are interested in sponsoring, uh, whether that means sponsoring, uh, some of the scholarship folks we have, because we're still going to do the thing where we offer a lot of scholarship tickets and we offer discounted tickets. Of course, the discounted creator tickets are first going to go out to everyone who got one of those in 2020. They get they get the first crack at that. And we're going to be inviting a lot of our, uh, those who, uh, got a, a sponsored, uh, ticket, uh, like a full scholarship, uh, for 2020. We're also going to be offering that out to the same crew. So that's everyone trying to honor what we did before, uh, and then opening that process up to more people. Speaking of processes, we do have a call for, for proposals. Again, you can find the RFP on the website. All the information is up in there including who the leadership of the Institute is. Of course, I'm there. Catherine's there. Uh, we're joined by Eric Vossmeyer, uh, who's a, a wonderful producer and it works all kinds of events here in the Southland and has a deep, long history of uh, working in theater festivals and um, as well as, as from the corporate events side of things and the immersive theater side of things. So we're very excited about what the vision for the Institute is. It doesn't just mean, it doesn't just mean doing a summit. It doesn't just mean creating a festival. It doesn't just mean continuing the work we do at No Pro and everything immersive. There is more to it than that. There are uh, projects in the works that are really about furthering the field and just making it easier for everyone to do work. Um, for those of you who know about uh, kind of the the sister project to all of this, uh, Leia, the, the League of Experiential Immersive Artists, that is separate. Just want to note that these are different things. That is a business league. There's a whole different structure there. There's there that project continues, but it continues under a, a different uh, rubric. Um, this one over here is our traditional nonprofit, uh, 501c3 style, uh, for those who want to get technical. All right. That was a very, very long breakdown. Uh, honestly, just go look at the website. <laughs> There's all sorts more in there. You can read the bios of everybody and, uh, you can also, you can see, uh, there'll be some more bios added on soon. Uh, Gabe Smedrizen, uh, who was also one of the uh, co-producers of uh, the the first two IDSs, uh, is also part of the team on the programming side. So we're very happy to be working with Gabe. Uh, we've got a really fun sponsorship team. Uh, that'd be Jacob Patterson of Think Tank, uh, who again has worked with us in the past. Uh, Dino Nama, uh, who did the logo for No Pro, also did the logo for the next stage, and this now what's going to be this very iconic X that we have, uh, which is our social logo. I'm 
always so happy to work with Dino. Uh, I love his design aesthetic. So, um, yeah, just I'm in full ramble mode. All right, I'm going to be quiet now. For those of you who've never heard the show like that before, uh, welcome. That's the way it always used to be. So uh, that was just 90 minutes of our lives. Uh, No, about uh, almost close to 15. All right, here we go. Let's do the credits. So the sustaining backers of No Persinium are Ari Hurstan, Brittany, Deborah Robinson, Elaine, Emily Gillette. Joining us is Jay Bushman. Hi, Jay. Lonnie Hanson, Paul Farnell, Mark Balthazar, Samuel Mustry, Sidney Guillory, and Jan Budman. The associate producer of this podcast is Parker Sella. Music for No Persinium is by Chris Porter of the Speakeasy Society. Special thanks to Siobhan O'Loughlin for voicing our intro. Catherine Yu is the executive editor at No Persinium. The Subaru piece was uh, written, edited, and mixed by Ricky Briganti of Pseudonym Productions. The rest of this podcast is written, edited, hosted, produced, and mixed by yours truly, Noah Nelson. And until next time, I'll see you at the show.